What about now? There we go. Before we read our scripture this morning, I wanted to tell you about some words that I learned that forever changed the face of how I, number one, was a Christian, number two, how I lived out my faith, and number three, how I read the scriptures. I learned about these words as magnifiers. Now, I know that's not a typical grammatical term. There's adverbs, adjectives, verbs, and whatnot, nouns. But magnifiers was something that are more appropriately descriptors. So, in the Christian faith, we have faith development, of course. Faith development is all sorts of things. We go to worship and learn right now. We may go to a class. We may go to the women Bible study. We may go to a men's group. We may do lots of different things. Faith development is something that many of us do. But here's the magnifier that forever transformed my idea of what faith development was. Intentional faith development. Intentional faith development transforms the idea of what faith development is. It's something that you plan to do. Something that Christ has called us to do. And there's other magnifiers of the basic Christian practices that we should do. I'll illuminate a couple of them for you because I saw them so prevalently in our scripture today. Intentional faith development. Mission. That's something that we do. We're doing a food drive. But what is making it crazy? What's the magnifier? Risk-taking. Risk-taking. Risk-taking mission. It's something that we're doing. We're digging deep into our pockets and making that money that we normally would spend on perhaps our Starbucks coffee or something more magnifiable. And we're taking a risk. We're taking a risk by giving one ton of food to La Iglesia. One ton of food. We could probably even do more. One ton of food next week, but one ton of food probably later on too. That's risk-taking. Risk-taking is those folks who went to Jerusalem. They're preaching the gospel in a country that doesn't always know the gospel words. That's risk-taking. Hospitality. How many of you have set up a dinner table, invited folks over for dinner? That's something normal that we do. Perhaps to our friends or our neighbors or our family. But what about radical hospitality? Hospitality to somebody who you don't know very well. Somebody who you need to get to know, who Jesus has placed in your life. Somebody who may be different than you in any way, shape, or form. That's radical hospitality. I know that this table is radical hospitality. We invite everybody from all walks of life to this table. That's radical. So we've got intentional faith development, radical hospitality, risk-taking mission. There's five of them in total, but the one that's my favorite is worship. What we do here on a regular Sunday morning is worship. What I do when I sing those praise songs that Richard gets stuck in my head on Sunday afternoon, that's worship. Maybe you listen to the fish on your radio. Maybe a hymn gets stuck in your brain. But what about passionate worship? When was the last time 
that you passionately worshipped our Lord and Savior. It's these magnifiers that have transformed my reading of the scripture, transformed my life, transformed my faith, and I saw them so prevalently in these scriptures that I thought that you would like to hear those magnifiers too. So that we don't just sit idly by. We don't just sit idly by and worship, have faith development, where's my Bible? It's not about that. There's magnifiers. There's magnifiers. So today's story, I know that Pastor Jeff thought we might be talking about Doubting Thomas, but we're not. That was last week's. In any event, we're talking about maybe the familiar story to you of two disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus was about a seven-mile walk outside of Jerusalem. This happens literally the afternoon of Easter. For us, Easter was two weeks ago. We celebrated. Yay, have fun. But Easter for them is a very palpable thing that happened that morning. Their lives were transformed. So this detailed narration account of these two followers of Jesus as they encounter the risen Christ on the road to Emmaus is one of the best sketches in biblical scenes. Second only to the prodigal son, which I also hope you know, but if you don't, talk to me later, we'll talk about it. Second only to the prodigal son, it is so elaborately descriptive. It almost makes you feel like you're on the road to Emmaus with these disciples. So let's put ourselves into that story. The leader of the movement that they had been following, or were following, or are following, has just died. Their future is completely uncertain. Jesus' followers had been staying behind closed doors for the past few days, three days, And they had just heard the account that morning that the women went to the tomb and they found that it was empty. The women went to the tomb and found that it was empty. And then they heard from the angels that their Lord is not there. And they should no longer be surprised or in fear, but they should be filled with so much joy. And these women went back and told the disciples, but the disciples were still a little iffy. Where is Jesus? What has he done? They didn't understand or comprehend the whole thing. So that afternoon, thinking that things were over, or at least things were at some sort of a pause in their faith, these two followers headed out of Jerusalem, home to Emmaus. And it must have taken a certain amount of courage for these folks to be talking on this heavily traveled road. And though they waited till they were outside the gates of Jerusalem, they still were taking risks. Emotions were tense. Roman soldiers were posted. Any talk of this so-called Messiah could have gotten themselves killed as well. And in the Greek, it implies that they weren't just talking about the events that had happened, but they were actually examining the evidence. After all, Jesus went through a court trial. How could he be condemned to death was the biggest question they had on their minds. How could Jesus, our Messiah, be condemned to death? So two of Jesus' followers decided to take the walk seven miles from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. And once outside the city, they started talking about everything that had happened. And a stranger joined them. 
He joined them and walked alongside them, with them. They didn't know who he was. Their eyes were kept from seeing who he was for some reason. But indeed, it was Jesus. Jesus says to them, you seem deep in discussion about something. What are you so concerned about? They stopped short. Sadness was written across their faces. Confusion was written across their faces. And Cleopas, the one who is named, replies to Jesus, You seriously must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the events of the past three days. Jesus plays along. What things? Cleopas says, Well, of course, the things that happened to Jesus. He's making the account. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, he was a prophet. He did wonderful miracles. He's also evangelizing. He was a mighty teacher, high regarded, not only by God, but by so many people. But our priests, our religious leaders condemned him to death. He was handed over and they crucified him. We had thought that he was the Messiah. You hear their doubt? We had thought... He was the Messiah who came to rescue Israel. And that all happened three days ago. And now they feel like they're in limbo. But, still analyzing the details, some women from our group, also followers, went to the, temp- went to the tomb. He wasn't there. We heard this amazing report that the angel said that he wasn't there. Jesus is alive. But we don't know if we believe them. Some of our men, in fact, went to go see if the tomb was indeed empty, and it was indeed empty. But they saw no angels, they saw no Jesus, and so we're still stupefied. Jesus says, you are so foolish. First of all, how dare a stranger come into two people's conversation and start talking to them about how foolish they are? But Jesus has the right to do this, doesn't he? How foolish can you be? It's right there, plain sight. You can almost touch it. How slow are you to know the scriptures and yet not see what's right in front of you? Wasn't it clearly predicted by the prophets that the Messiah would have to suffer all of these things before he entered his time of glory? And so Jesus then goes on to quote passages from the writings of Moses, all of the prophets, explaining all of the scriptures and what they mean about himself. It was like running a Bible quiz 10K, right? Every new mile was a new scripture story. The first mile was Genesis. The second mile was Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, went on through all of the prophets until they reached mile six and seven on their way to Emmaus. Not quite the rock and roll marathon, but it was definitely Jesus's idea of a fun time. He wanted to illuminate all of the scriptures so that they understood. So at each mile marker, I know that he was telling the story. Jesus had the time. He needed to reframe it. These Hebrew boys knew the scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, but they didn't get it. They just didn't get it. And by this time, they were entering Emmaus. They had reached their seven miles. And Jesus, of course, would have gone on, but Cleopas says, stranger, who they still didn't know his name, wait, it's getting late. 
stay the night with us. So we went home with them. And after the meal had been prepared for them, Jesus sat down and he took a small loaf of bread. And he broke it and gave thanks to God. And at that very moment, they knew who he was. And at that very moment, Jesus disappeared. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And Cleopas says, Didn't our hearts feel so warm and so strange as he talked to us and explained those scriptures to us for those seven miles? And within the hour, they were on their way right back to Jerusalem with their good news. They went and saw the 11 disciples, and they were gathered there, and they reported to them. The disciples reported to the two disciples that they had seen Jesus. Peter had seen Jesus, and they were so, the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus were so excited about telling their news that they said they had seen Jesus. He was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread, and all of this was happening. Jesus, indeed, was risen. They didn't recognize him at first, but Jesus indeed is risen. I love that the two people received such joy that they had to run back that night. Surely it was evening time. Surely it was dark. Little known fact, the road to Jerusalem is a treacherous place filled with robbers. So traversing this in the evening was usually a bad idea, but their joy was too exciting. Too exciting. 14 miles in one day. I'm sure this excitement gave them plenty of adrenaline to go and their unintended half marathon of 14 miles total in one day, but it was that exciting for them. Now, I don't know all of your fitness habits. Everyone has their own level of fitness, healthy habits. I don't usually run a half marathon. Some of you might think that that's a really good idea to do on a Saturday morning while you're training for your full marathon. Some of you might think that that's an unimaginable amount of running to do on a regular basis. Whatever your training and fitness goals, it made me think about training and fitness goals. Well, some of you might know that there's these devices that you can wear on your wrist, Fitbit, Nike, Fuel things, lots of different ones that can track all of these different things. Wristbands, watches, pendants, they can monitor your physical activity during the day and in some cases even at night. They connect maybe through a Bluetooth, and you can connect with it on your special app, your phone or your tablet. It'll carefully log how many steps you take, how many flights of stairs you've climbed, the calories you've burned through different things, and should you slack off during your idle hours, it'll tell you how much time you've wasted. At one point in my life, I was eager to find out from a fitness tracker of some sort how I was physically fit. I wore two trackers for the test, one on my wrist and one on my phone, since I have that with me all the time anyway. And so on a normal day, strolling from a further parking spot, which I thought was a good idea to add some steps, or maybe going um, to lunch and walking to it on Huntington Drive, a few climbs up and down those stairs, which you know I do all of the time, I regularly tallied 4,000 steps. It turns out I often walk two to three miles a day without really trying, probably less when I'm wearing heels. And after a couple of days, these tractors, trackers, having seen the pattern of my activity take shape, the numbers ceased to be interesting to me. In effect, I'd run a diagnostic of my physical behavior, 
And the results, well, I was doing okay. I didn't need to keep measuring. I walked around plenty. I didn't need a daily report confirming that fact. And then there were, of course, the days that I was playing soccer that I couldn't be wearing my fit tracker, and so my fuel levels eternally exceeded what I needed to do for the day. I thought I could maybe just use them as sleep trackers because, you know, things keep you up at night. That's fine. This function wasn't always up to par, however, and at one point the tracker thought I had nodded off at work. I was crazy busy at my desk working hard, and as much as I'd like to think how gifted I not do this job while I'm sleeping. But all this focus on daily routine, I know you all know somebody with some sort of a fitness tracker or those step counters that were really popular that were given out by McDonald's a couple of years ago. It made me start thinking about my food intake, my level of fitness activity, my sleep habits, my bank account statements. But is there a gauge for our faith? There seems to be a gauge for everything else. But is there a gauge for our faith? What tracks our walking with Jesus? For the people on the road to Emmaus, literally walking with Jesus. For us, figuratively walking with Jesus. What tracks our walking with Jesus? And then I thought about those magnifiers. I thought about those magnifiers that forever transformed my faith journey. And how applicable they were to some sort of a measurement of our faith. They definitely amplify some of our basic daily faith activities. And it can be the difference between idle faith and healthy faith. On the road to Emmaus, these two boys were, or actually one of them thought, some commentator thought that Cleopas had a wife and they were walking together. So we don't actually know the other gender or the other name, but Cleopas and his or her brick. The two Hebrew school educated guys or girls, they knew the Savior. They had been to school. They had faith development. But what changed? What changed? It wasn't just their faith development. They had the chance, seven miles of intentional faith development. They were taking risky, risky questions. They were asking, who was Jesus? Where was he? The depth of their questions was only matched by the answers. And of course, once they heard the good news, they did passionate worship. Literally with their feet, they jumped up and they went back to Jerusalem. That's passionate. That's not just regular worship. Now, there isn't an app or a wristband that will help us indicate our walk with Jesus. But Luke, for our gospel today, is saying that we can only know Jesus and only recognize him if we learn about these magnifiers of our faith. We'll read the scriptures, be impacted by them. We will risk-take in our tasks. We will have passionate worship. When was the last time? When was the last time that you not only studied the scriptures, but applied it to your life? When was the last time that you jumped up for joy to come to worship on a Sunday morning? When was the last time? It's these magnifiers, 
I urge you, that have come to me from the road to Emmaus and walking with Jesus that forever have changed my life. Will they change yours passionately, intentionally, and risk-taking? Amen.